Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was the unmistakable sound of Howie Casey on sax there just at the end. And throughout that track, that was Jet by Paul McCartney and Wings. One of the highlights from their band on the run LP. And I think the first single released in Britain from that brilliant, brilliant album. Got the great pleasure to welcome saxophonist Howie Casey here today who played with Wings, as well as many, many fabulous artists over many, many decades. So let's hear my chat with Howie. Is that Howie? Hi, Howie. It's uh, Jason Barnard here for the podcast. Oh, Oh, yeah. I've got a bowl of crisps in front of me and a glass of red (laughs) wine by me. First of all, the people you've played with is is like a who's who of... uh, rock history really but obviously you're most known in many circles for playing with Paul McCartney and Wings for for much of the um, 70s and uh, you have Beatles with Wings band and show out how do you get to um, how is it trying to sort of recreate the sound of Paul McCartney and Wings with such full sounding tracks as uh, Jet well I mean the line of Beatles with Wings is very very similar to the original Wings lineup we have a horn section, which I was part of, you know, so we got a four-piece brass horn section, you know, a couple of saxes, trumpet and trombone, and then, of course, all the other instruments, keyboards, uh, guitars, bass, drums, etc., vocals. We've got uh, two girl singers, backups, and lead singer, John Jones, you know. So the actual lineup is pretty well the same. We're not out to do, and we aren't a tribute band. We don't dress up. Or look alike. I don't even look like I looked back then, you know, so 
not like uh, you do get these Beatles bands, they dress in all the uniforms and mm. so on and so forth. We're, we're not into that. What we're doing, we're just playing the music off, but playing it well yes. and fully orchestrated and so on and so forth. You know, So anybody comes to hear the band or see the band, they'll get that, you know, and uh, it's a great full sound. Yeah, that's the idea. I didn't want to go in down that road of uh, uh, getting people who look like Paul McCartney or people who look like any of the others, like Denny Lane or Jimmy or any of those guys. I just wanted people who could do the job, mm. who could sing well, which they can. And, of course, like uh, John Jones, uh, the lead singer, he can hit all the high notes, the original you know, arrangements that Paul did. And uh, sad to say, I don't think Paul can do that these days. He's an old geezer like me, you know. Yeah. So uh, John can do all in the original keys and everything, you know, so it sounds like it would have sounded back then. And the material that you play, is it is it basically the remit to just cover anything that Wings played live at the time, or is it broader? Or? Well, it's broader because, I mean, we do Beatles material as well, obviously, as it says in the title, you know. Yeah. So we do quite a few... Uh, Beatles songs and the Wings songs. We open up with Venus and Mars Rock Show. Uh, we do that. And then that, that hmm. uh, segues into Jet, yeah. as we used to do live, you know, years ago. Uh, and then on it goes from there. And it's the sort of thing you maybe get two or three Wings numbers, then you get a couple of Beatles numbers. And throughout the two sets, you know, it's uh, yeah. about a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour show, all told, you know. So there's a good mix in there of all sorts, the rock stuff, the ballad stuff, etc., etc. you know. But obviously, um, you were a, a peer of Paul McCartney's and you were in bands um, in Liverpool um, in the late 50s, just as uh, Paul, John, George were? Yeah, a little before, because I'm a little older than them. Uh, yeah. I had to go in the army because I was, was in the days when you had to do national service, so... Uh, in 1955, I went into the army, a Liverpool regiment called the King's Regiment, and uh, I managed to get into the band. I'd started playing sax before that, in about 19, what, 53, 54, you know? Right. And uh, I, I got into the, it's a military band, but of course there were offshoots of that uh, because uh, there was lots of young guys in there who wanted to play jazz or rock. Well, rock was just emerging big at that time. And uh, it was very interesting to listen to, for me anyway, the the rock saxophone players who were around at that time. You know, Little Richard, uh, his sax player mostly was a guy called Lee Morgan, a condo to him and Herb Hardesty, King Curtis, those sort of guys, you know. So I was listening to those. So when I came out of the army, I was into rock, although I liked mm. jazz as well. I still do. But uh, I found that rock was, uh, for me, it was... Uh, what satisfied me playing was. I'm not saying I was as good as those yeah. guys, but that's what I like to do. And uh, yeah, so when I came out of the army, that was uh, that was '58, and I um, then I scattered around and found some like-minded musicians in Liverpool, and uh, we gradually formed. There was uh, two or three little bands that I, I went and played with, and then we formed. I found a couple of musicians, and we formed a band which uh, became called Daddy and the Seniors, which was the sort of take on Danny and the Juniors, if you see what I mean. And, uh, yes, yeah, so uh, we did that round, all around the Liverpool scene, all the, the, the local dance halls, mm. and all the gigs. Uh, the, the, the clothes did the cavern, one of the first bands actually to do the cavern, rock bands, I 
prior to that, mostly uh, Ray McFall, who, who ran it. He was a jazz freak, and it was mostly jazz bands that were played in there. And then he, he liked our band because we had a sax player and we had a black singer, so he gave that sort of image of being not jazz, but it was more towards what he liked, you know. So, yeah, we got that, and other bands then cottoned onto it and followed us in there, you know. So that was that. And we played all over Liverpool. Mm. And then eventually we needed to, well, there was a lot of things to and fro. We went to Germany with the first Liverpool band to go to Hamburg, playing in the Kaiser Keller in 1960. And, uh, of course, then the Beatles followed us over. I wasn't too pleased about it because you probably know the stories, but yeah. uh, there was uh, um, auditions for a guy called Larry Parnes, who's a big a big promoter at the time, and he had a stable of singers, <clears throat> you know, like uh, Billy Fury, Dickie Pride, Duffy Power, uh, all yeah. those sort of names. So, I think mean, Georgie Fame was in there amongst them. And of course, uh, he was putting on shows in Blackpool, and he was looking for bands to back his stable of singers. And he came to Liverpool because he thought he'd get cheap bands, uh, cheaper ones than the London bands, you know. So we did the audition for him, as amongst other bands there, bands like what became the Big Three later and so on. And there was another young, a uh, few young guys we'd never seen before, and they would call themselves the Silver Beatles, you know. So we all did our bit. We weren't overly impressed, really. We didn't think about them that much, but we weren't overly impressed with the Silver Beatles. And um, anyway, off we went. We'd been offered a gig. Uh, with one of the singers, I had the Dickie Pride of Duffy Power to back him. And then for one reason or another, it fell through. So uh, anyway, we got really teed up about that because some of the guys in the band had jobs and they packed their jobs in to do this season. We got on to Alan Williams, went down to his club and said, you know, what the hell's going on? You know, what are we going to do now? So he, he was thinking on his feet and he just said, uh, well, um, we could go down to London, guys, and... Uh, we can get you a gig in the Two Eyes, which is a famous coffee bar in London at the time, uh, where a lot of bands played, you know. So, mm. being naive, so we said, yeah, okay. And a few days later, we all set off in a few cars down to London, got to the Two Eyes. I went in with Alan because I never trusted him after that. And, uh, you know, he hadn't booked us in there, but we went up to the guy, Tom Little, who do sort of ran the place and said, you know, could we play there? Well, it wasn't for money, you know, it was just like, you know. So he said, yeah, because uh, the two eyes was on, there was the ground floor where the coffee bar was, downstairs was where the bands played. And so we went down there and uh, we got on stage, played, did our set, went down quite well. As luck would have it, there was a guy in the uh, audience called Bruno Koschmieder who had a club in Germany, in Hamburg, called the Kaiser Keller. And uh, he was looking for a band to replace the band that had left the club and gone to a new club called the Top Ten on the Ribbon. And that band was Tony Sheridan and the, and the Jets. And in that band, uh, they had a sax player and a black singer. Uh-huh. And of course, when he saw us, it was like, oh yeah, that's the same. you know. So he booked us on that afternoon. We signed contracts. And um, not long after that, off we went over to, to Hamburg, you know. And it was while we were there, we were doing very well. And um, I got a letter from Alan to say that uh, he was sending over 
they're now called the Beatles, you know. And uh, I wrote back to him and said, no, 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 don't send them over. Send one of the, the other bands like Rory Storm or the Big Three or one of the, the more well-known bands. But anyway, it was basically, he'd already booked them. They were going into a place called the Indra, which is a little bar just up the road from the Kaiser Keller. Because the Kaiser Keller was quite a big club for us anyway at the time, you know. Yeah. And they, so there it went. You know, the Beatles thought they were going to play in uh, the Kaiser Keller. But of course, they were a bit pissed off because they were shoved in this bar up the road. And uh, okay, we went up to see them when we had some uh, downtime. And they were great. They'd really worked on it, you know, on, the, on their stuff. And they'd improved, you know, 100%. And of course, they had Pete Best on drums by then. Because they didn't have a drummer at the uh, audition, so and that was it. So they used to come down the the Kaiser Keller because we used to play on into the early hours where they didn't, and uh, they'd come down and they'd get up and jam with us, and you know, and so on and so forth. And you know, we became uh, good friends, you know. So and that was that. That was that period in Germany. We went back, yeah. they went back, and then on and on it went. You know, we played around Liverpool. And then we got another singer in, uh, and there's a guy called, at that time, his name was Freddie Fowle. He later, he later became Freddie Starr. And uh, so we had two singers on the front, mm. and the act was really good. We changed the lineup of the band due to sort of, well, Alan, Alan Williams' club. He opened the club called the Top Ten Club, and it got burned down. And uh, a lot of the gear, our gear was uh, destroyed. And uh, we don't really know whether well, there was a local gang who took over the club, and then we don't really know it was uh, somebody set fire to it, if you see what I mean, for an insurance job. And anyway, so we changed the lineup of the band, picked up a new drummer, Frank Wibley, who I knew before, great drummer, and uh, bass player, and uh, and still kept the, the nucleus of the, the, the original band. And then we went from there and we recorded again, first band out of Liverpool to make a to, to have a single and an album out. Uh, that was, we recorded in 61, I think it came out in 62. And, uh, yeah, so that all went on and on and on and on for a while. We played all over, we played down in London and South Coast and Midlands and Manchester and so on. We had the album and the two records out. There's one track, it's a bit hackneyed now, but of course, there's one track, it's called I Ain't Mad at You. Uh, that's Derry's thinking that. That's off the album. I ain't mad at you.
as it turned out then, the band had run its course. What it was, I left the band because the girlfriend I had, she got pregnant. And of course, uh, you did the right thing in those days and you got married and I had to get myself a proper job. And so that went on for a while. I packed the band in and everyone was a bit teed off with me, but it was one of those things you had to do. And um, the other guys in the band, uh, Griff, the guitarist, he went off to join the big three and uh, uh, all the others. They all got jobs with various other bands, you know, because they were good. And of course, Freddie, he started his rise to fame and fortune, you know. But um, mm. after about a year or so of doing that, and uh, with the baby and uh, everything, I was offered gigs in uh, in the Star Club by a band called King Size Tail and the Dominoes. And I thought, sod this working. I was working in a shop. I was managing a shop and uh, I was teed off, you know. So <laughs> I got an offer from a guy called Bobby Thompson, who's the bass player of the Dominoes. Would I like to go over there? And I jumped at it. And off I went and... Uh, it was more money than I was in in the shop anyway, so I could afford to send money home and then support myself over there. And so that that was it, you know, and on it went from there. I, I, I stayed with King Size for two or three years, I think. We backed all sorts of people like Chuck Berry and, uh, oh, I don't know, God knows, loads of people. And, it, and then eventually that band uh, broke up, mm. uh, as bands do. And... Um, I ended up, first of all, back in Liverpool, going back to Germany with other bands and picking up another band. Is that the crew? I, yeah, well, I went out with a band from Liverpool called The Pawns. Ah. And that was the place called Karlsruhe to the New York City Club. And when I got there, because I'd been out in Germany, I know the place is full of gangsters, all these clubs, you know. And these guys were running the club. I said, well, boy, this doesn't look hot, you know. So hmm. as it happened... The band that was there before us was still around. They were called The Crew. Ah. And they were going off uh, to France, uh, to Paris. So they said to me, would you like to come with them? So I said, uh, I think so, yeah. So I squared it with the, the rest of the guys, the pawns. said, do you mind? And they said, no, how you go on, do it, you know, because they didn't like the look of the way things were shaping up. So, yeah, so I went off with The Crew. And um, again, that was okay. We we got to Paris. We were supposed to back, back a guy called Dick Rivers, who was a fairly well-known artist in France. And uh, that was okay, but there wasn't many gigs. Yeah. So it was the usual thing. You end up skin starving. So uh, eventually we went back uh, to London and we got tied up with them. Uh, a guy called Tony Stratton-Smith, he, he booked us to back a singer I knew very well, uh, Beryl Marsden from Liverpool. So we worked with Beryl and we were doing all the clubs in London, Baganales and the Pickwicks and various places like that, Scottish and James. And um, that was good and the band was going, that changed line up a little bit. So I took over the reins for a while and then we were offered more gigs in France, a ski resort, uh, Courchevel, we did that, that was successful. Uh, we were booked down into Paris, uh, and then we stayed in Paris for right through all the riots and everything, 68 and all that. And uh, we were doing okay over there. And then eventually, again, as things run its course, you know, we played all over Switzerland, you name it, uh, all, all the continental countries and uh, uh, with that band. It was a very good band. And we turned into soul music by this time, you know, mm. the 
that part of it was built. Uh, and then, again, uh, bands broke up. My second missus, because uh, I parted from my original wife, she'd gone with somebody else. So I, there was a lady called Madison John, great Scottish singer, you know. And and she joined the crew, because I, I brought her to yeah. the, you know, yeah. you know this would be great with the band, because I had a guy called, an American guy, black guy called Annie Garrett Jr. So with uh, Barry and Annie on the front, and we had this band made up of some Brits and then French and Swiss guys, you know, all great musicians. And uh, yes, so we did very well over there. And then eventually, uh, Annie decided he was leaving the band, and this, that, and the other happens. As I say, with bands, it always happens. Um, we came back because a guy called Emperor Roscoe, who's a, uh, a DJ, you know, uh, a radio DJ, he used to see us down the Bill Bouquet Club where we were residents a lot. And he said, well, I can get you a recording contract, you know, over in Britain uh, with the band, with Barry as the, the lead for it, you know. So that's what we did. We came back to Britain and uh, put out an album, uh, Roscoe, he sort of uh, produced it. It's six three four five seven eight nine. The old Wilson Pickett.
And that that went on like that. And it's a whole, you know, you're talking years and years and years here. The complete history of the crew is actually available on, on the, the Strange Brew website because a friend of mine is Nick Warburton. Oh, yeah. So mm. if people want to find out more about the crew, they can they can go on to, to the Strange Brew. And um, yeah. Barry St. John's um, album, according to St. John, is, yeah. is a bit, bit of a lost classic. You know, such a great soul voice she's got on tracks like Turn On Your Light. That's right, yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that uh, it was on a, a, a record company called Major Minor, yeah, I think was the uh, and uh, one reason or the other, I don't know. It it was great, you know. I mean, okay, the lineup had changed slightly, but it was still the same. The idea was still the same, you know, that sort of solely type stuff, you know. And she was a great singer, mm. but it didn't. I don't know. It it, it didn't get there with the the, the, the punters. But uh, a lot of people say now, yeah, that was a great album, you know. Yeah. No, she's now well retired, uh, Barry. You know, mm. she doesn't sing anymore. You know, uh, she hasn't sang for years. But uh, now she's a great singer. But yes, yeah, so it was a shame because that I I really liked that yeah. album. But after that, things went on. I got to play, and she did. She got recorded contracts with other companies. You know, and she was putting out singles and stuff. Uh, and then, well, again, we had a baby. You know, Gainer. So we hung around London. We were in London for. A, quite a long while yeah a bit hand to mouth at times which it is you know i was gigging with all sorts of people and she was doing her thing yeah and then we occasionally go over to germany or somewhere do american bases and things like that you know Turn on that light, babe, turn on your light All right, yeah. 
then I joined a band called the well, Roy Young Band, it, it turned out to be. And that was a great band. That was a great rock band, you know. And uh, again, we had a couple of albums out. That was brilliant. Roy Young, uh, Granny's Got a Painted Leg. There's a title for you. The reason it's called that is because uh, we wanted to write a definitive rock and roll song at that time in the 70s. But uh, the lyrics have searching, you know, the word searching in a lot. And uh, we thought we can't call it searching. There's not many songs called searching. So they asked me, what do you call it? What do you think, Howie? Because I wrote it with uh, uh, Dave Wendell, the guitarist. And I said, ah, Granny's got a painted leg. So they called it that. That's why nobody bought it. <laughs> so, but it's a good track, good rock and roll track. you and Barry you can really hear you both you, you on sax and, and Barry on backing vocals on the uh, Tony Visconti produced 20th Century Boy by Matt Bolland T-Rex that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 
Tony contacted me and I went, he had a recording studio in his house at the time. Yes. And I used to go down there occasionally and put some sacks on whatever tracks he'd uh, put together, you know. And um, anyway, uh, the Mark Bowen thing came up, but that was in a proper studio, you know, in town. And um, I did a couple of tracks and that was one of them. And that, that was the thing he said to me at the end. He said, now listen to how he said, can you, uh, something different, just freak out on the end. Don't, you know, don't, not a solo, so it's just like, let it rip, you know, so you can hear it on the end. I'm doing all these <laughs> mad harmonics yeah. and things, you know. And uh, yeah, as you say, uh, yeah. uh, Barry and uh, Liza Strike, I think it was, was one of the other girls. And I think there's another one, I can't remember now. But uh, yeah, so they did live shows and they did recordings and, and we did a few live shows. And then a little later, I was still doing stuff uh, for Mark. And then I was going out, I went out and did some tours with him, you know. And I found him great. The thing was with him, he was he was sharp. He was really, mm. he knew what he's on about business-wise, you know, because he employed a manager. He, did, he didn't have a, a manager who took money off him. He gave a, a wage to this guy. I can't remember his name now, but... Uh, so it was like that. And also, I believe, and I thought it was true, he held on to 100% of his publishing rights. You know, back in those days, and I think it still happens, you know, you share with the company, you know. So he opened his own publishing company, you know. Uh -huh. So he was getting all the publishing. So he was earning lots of money. But then again, once he was killed, nobody knew all the money was. So I don't know if they still do it. It's, it's one of those things. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, he was okay, you know. Um, I worked with loads of different people around that time, you know, doing odd sessions and, uh, you know, so it was always like that. I did one for David Bowie and, uh, I didn't know him. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, it was one of those things where I got a call and I don't know whether it was Tony. I was in Marquee Studios, you know, Water Street and, uh, yeah. Uh, it was me and another sax player, Jeff Daly, I think. So we go into the studio, it's dark and the, the, the actual, control room was in darkness there was just light on the on the, the control panel you know where the faders are yeah and uh so we didn't know who we were talking to <laughs> we played us the track and then a voice came and said that you know we'd like to do something there and something there you know so so we worked out what we were going to do you know and also the only uh thing because they wouldn't let us go in to listen to it uh what we'd done the only thing i saw once in the light that was shining on the control panel it was this very long, thin hand came on and pulled the faders back and went out. <laughs> so quite weird. And that's the only time uh, I worked with David Bowie. But, uh, and I can't remember what the track was. I haven't got an idea at all. But I did. But I, it, there was lots of, not like that quite, but working with all sorts of people like Donovan. And you go into the studio and you do like a three-hour session and play with Mm. whatever and do solos and play parts and stuff and then you get your money and you bugger off and you go to the pub and have a drink afterwards and you know you didn't think twice about it really there was lots and lots and lots of them you know so but mostly I was still playing with bands as well you know like with Roy or whatever the bands I was involved with at the time you know
was through Tony that you got the connection with uh, Paul McCartney. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, Tony phoned me up. As I said, I've been working for him on and off. And uh, he said, uh, we're doing this session uh, for Paul. Uh, would you like to do it? You know, I said, yeah, sure, you know. Anyway, it was booked, whatever the day was. So I was living in London then, of course, and um, I went up. And I don't know why I did it. It was weird. I went to her uh, uh, studios, and I go uh, upstairs there in their studios, and I'm looking at and I asked somebody, said, Where, where's Paul's session? And uh, Paul, uh, Paul McCartney, you know, where's his session? It's not here. So I said, shit. And then, luckily, there was somebody there, said, now it's at Abbey Road. Holy God, damn it. So I ran out of the sacks and uh, <coughs> jumped into a cab, <laughs> get me to Abbey Road, you know. And uh, I arrived at the studio, you know, and I puffed out, walked in, and there they all are lined up. Those the other sax players, because they were waiting to do Jet. You know, there was three other sax players, and me, I was supposed to join them. Anyway, they were okay about it. Paul was all right. So I said, okay, don't worry, don't worry. Sit down, you know. Yeah. So then Tony came out and said, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. And that, that was Jet. And that consisted of uh, two tenor saxes, a baritone sax, and a bass saxophone playing that riff, you know, da 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 you know, that thing. So mm. anyway, we, we went through that, Jet, all the little bits in it and so on, and did that one. And then that was finished, and the other guys were going off. And uh, Paul said, Howie, can you hang on a sec? There's a couple of other numbers I'd like to do. So I said, yeah, sure, you know. So anyway, one of the other ones was uh, Bluebird. And he said, uh, uh, we'd like to play a solo with this part here. You know, and play me a bit. I said, okay, okay. Yeah, just let me look. Okay, it's that. Yeah. Okay, go on. So they played the track. I played a solo. And at the end of it, Paul said, yeah, that's it. And I said, no, 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 I can do better than that. He said, no, 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 that sounds good. I said, well, go on, try. You know, so... I did cut another couple of three solos, hmm. and he said, no, the first one, that's it, you know. Late at night when the wind is still, I'll come flying through your door. And you'll know what love is for. I'm a bluebird, I'm a bluebird, I'm a bluebird, I'm a bluebird. Bluebird, 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 bluebird
uh, and then from that that point on, it gradually got better and better. The band, you know, as we uh, mm. because everything does any band goes on the road playing night after night, it grows organically. You know, other things come into it. You know, like with the horns or the guitars, you start to put in little licks and go, oh, yeah, keep that one and do that. You know, that type of thing. You know. So yeah, and on it went. You can see how you know when you listen to Wings of America, Lady Madonna. Yeah, having the horns and your sax on there yeah. couldn't be done as well without you there. No, I well, that was a little bone I have to pick with him because after the Wings thing, it's up to him, of course, you know. Yeah, it's his choice, Paul. But it's just the fact that he never used the horn section. He has now, I believe he's got one, but. Right. Uh, but all those years, he was using keyboard horns, you know. It's not the same. Which is not the same. No. Good enough as the player is, you know, Wixie. Mm. It doesn't matter. It's not the real thing. You don't get that, that feel, you yeah. know, from electronic horns, you know. It's, uh, but there we are. That was his choice. But yeah, it did. It grew and grew uh, right up to the very end. It was just a shame it went to pieces like it did. I think uh, there was a few things with Jimmy leaving him and then dying of course yeah. and then Joe English leaving and then of course oh no bless them the the, the new people that came in <coughs> Steve Holly not Stuber. uh but yeah so I mean great guitar player and great drummer you know uh, but it, there's sort of atmosphere someone maybe wasn't as rocky I don't know the atmosphere sort of changed Yeah. Okay. 
we were talking about Lady Madonna live, yeah. where you know the horn sound, the sax was integral, but there are tracks like Silly Love Songs where again your sax and the horns were integral to the makeup of the song. Yeah, Let Him In as well. Another yeah. one. I think there's three on that. Well, um, again, that was in the good days, if you like. That was done in Abbey Road. Paul uh, called us in. Yeah. And uh, we went up there. He, you know, he'd already, and the rhythm section already laid down the track. And it was just for the horns. And so we stood around the piano, and he, he sort of said, well, at this bit, I'd like this, you know, things like da 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 ba and then all the little licks that went on, and then the main lick, that bit, you know. Hmm. And so we also played it, yeah, okay, yeah, now we'll do a harmony there, and you can do that. And, and so we worked it out around the piano like that, you know.
And then again, same with uh, Let Him In. Uh, we worked out the what we were going to do. It was going to be uh, flutes, you know, for the, the first uh, sort of lick, which is that thing. And then the, the horns come in on the middle section. I can't sing very well, but as you can tell. But anyway, and then I don't think there was another track on it, and I can't remember what the hell it was. But uh, yeah, so we did that. Uh, again, we were on, you know, we weren't on royalties. People tend to think, uh, oh, yeah, you play with McCartney, yeah. you play with the Who, you play with yeah. all these people. But you're not on royalties, you're on session fees, you know. And I think that was uh, something like a uh, treble scale, so three times the session, yeah. uh, uh, the, the musician's union session fee. We were on that, you know. So it brought in a few quid, of course it did, you know. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so that's that. that was that one. Brother John 
screens inside, built inside the studio between the actual control room, all round, and little windows in those screens where people with uh, movie cameras, you know, cameras, were sort of filming what was going on. Ah. Anyway, so that was all right. I think the, the pictures of it and everything, they, they came out well to film. But what happened, something with the sound was wrong. Yeah. And, uh, of course, by this time, everyone had gone home. It was like sort of a week or two later. And uh, I got a call again from Alan. And he said, uh, bit of a problem. We need to uh, do something with the sound. We can't call all these guys back again. It's like the whole section had all gone off to America. You know, Pete Townsend and all the rest of them, they'd all gone off to whatever they were doing. So he said, uh, can you help out? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll get. And I got a great guitar player called uh, Mark, Mark Jenner. He worked with Cliff and all sorts of people, you know, session guy. Yeah. He came in, and what, what we did was he got the sounds he thought were like Hank's sound or like a Pete Townsend sound. Or that. Oh, and they, they still kept the originals, but then he, yeah. he beefed them, you know, right. beefed them up. And right through, yeah. uh, the horns the same. Uh, I got in my horn section and we beefed up the horns, you know, uh, like that. Keyboards, now who did the keyboards? And I didn't I didn't bring the keyboards in. Well, anyway, Paul could have done that. Of course he could. And of course, like uh, Steve Holly and Lawrence Juba could have uh, done the bit with them. But anyway, that, that's what happened. So what you hear on the record, it is them. It is the originals. But there's a, just a little bit of uh, yeah. you know, tracking going on, you know, underneath that. So, yeah, that was... Interesting little story, I suppose, you know.
But the the big one was Japan when they get when they got busted, and that was like, well, we got the. In fact, I don't don't want to go into all this, but we got yeah. uh, a rise for the horn section because he didn't play pay the biggest money at first, you know, and uh, we were on. I'm telling you this because it's out mm. there anyway. But when we first started uh, with with him, we were on two hundred pounds a week each. We got some per diems to help us, but of course we were staying in all these five star hotels. You know, in Paris we stayed in the George Shank Hotel, one of the most expensive hotels at the time in the world. You know, and of course we didn't get money for, we didn't get bought food. We didn't have a, you know, because a lot of the staff who worked for McCartney they were on tour with us, and they they just put it right off on their their tab, you know, yeah. for food. Well, we had to use the $50 a day to pay for food, Mm. for cleaning, for whatever else you wanted, buy yourself cigarettes or whatever, you know. And, of course, that soon went, especially in those sort of places. So, of course, by the time we finished that tour, none of us had any money left. So it was the thing where we said, well, what about a tour bonus? So they did. They gave us a tour bonus, $10,000 each, which sounds good. But of course, mine came from America, so they stopped three thousand yeah. dollars for the starting tax, you know. But he, he so so it went on like that. The second tour, we raised it up to four hundred pounds a week, you know. But it still was a bit tight, you know. I got more from other bands. I was getting more with Les Humphries and other bands, you know, than that. But you know, it, it was a great gig. So the thing is, the Japanese just before the Japanese tour, mm. Tony Dorsey was the spokesman for the horn section. We'd all got together and say, look, what the hell are we going to do? We need some more money. This is stupid, you know. We're not coming out of it with any money. And we knew other home players who worked with other bands. You know, and they're on real big books, you know. Yeah. So anyway, Tony went in and first, uh, well, first of all, he asked for this rise. And uh, he managed to get $1,000 a gig for the band. Each of us, the whole section, sorry, each of us. We thought, yeah. That's more like it. That's great. Mm. And so we go to Japan, and we've got 11 gigs in Japan. And so when we get there, uh, we'd all flown in from different times, I'd, I'd, uh, different places. I'd flown in from Britain. And uh, so I get to the hotel, and then Steve Howard, Tony Dawson, Thaddeus, they come in from America, mm. and uh, we all met up in the hotel. I bought some cigars at the Duty Free, you know, besides some booze, you know. And I saw in my hotel room, I handed out cigars to the guys and go, well, here we go, boys. I'm pumping on a cigar and having a drink. Mm. And we're all happy boys because we're going to get $1,000 a gig. And then um, Alan Crowder came, and, and he's a good friend of mine, Alan. You know, we used to knock about together, you know, in between tours and whatever. And he came in, and his face was like ashen. And he, I said, oh, do you want a drink? You know, and he said, no, no, no. He said, haven't you heard? And I said, why? What's the matter? And he said, that Paul's been arrested. And of course, I said, no, he's taking the pick. Piss, you know, he's taking the mickey. And uh, he said, no, I'm serious. He's been arrested. Why? You know, well, of course, then we found out. They'd found uh, a big bag of uh, stuff in his in one of his cases, you know. And he, of course, he's straight into Nick because he evidently gone through him and Linda. They, they'd come in from the States. Yeah. And uh, evidently, 
the night before they had a bag of grass and uh, whoever did it I don't like to cast the specials, but I won't say but I heard stories but instead of like just dumping it because they could have got all the grass in the world if they wanted to in Japan mm. they put it in a case one case and of course when they got there it was like a formality there was the representatives of the Japanese government or whatever say welcome Mr. Cap McCartney lovely to have you here on your tour in Japan and um, it's just a formality put you through customs just open one case oh you know of all the cases they had about four or five cases they opened the one and there it was sitting on top it wasn't even buried underneath even you know mm. and of course that was it big kerfuffle and of course off Paul went you know go to jail don't pass go you know so mm. So that was the end of that. And uh, what we had to do was, we were told, stay around the hotel or, you know, don't go far. We have to wait and we see if we can get him out. As you probably know, there was all sorts of big names from all over the world, you know, dealing with the Japanese government. But they'd lost face. And that was the thing, you know. And they, you can't do this to us. You can't think you go in our country, you know, and just blatantly show the stuff, you know. So anyway, eventually, I think, I don't know, it was a week or so, we were just hanging around a hotel. We'd go out to uh, Tokyo a bit and wander about, buy T-shirts or whatever. Then eventually the news came through. Packy cases uh, were off. And so we all did that. Off we went to the airport. And Paul was uh, brought over uh, to the plane, put into the in with us in uh the back of the plane sort of thing and uh, off we went and then of course he was moved straight up into first class once we'd taken off you know uh, and it wasn't long after that there was a few of the bits and bobs went on uh, but then of course that was the end of it uh, the wings of that line up and the only thing is we did get paid we got we got the money for the whole of that tour and he had to pay he brought over show code, the sound people from Texas. They were all paid, all the different roadies and so on. You know, everyone was paid. So that bag of grass must have cost them a fortune, absolutely, you know. But there we are. I mean, what can you say, you know? And uh, Denny was outraged with him, you know, and uh, none of us were too well pleased. Uh, but then again, mm. you know, he's he's lived this life right from the Beatles onwards, of more or less everybody, it's not, not, not that they're yes people, but they do whatever he wants, and, whatever, and he's always done that really whatever he wants. He's a fairly well-balanced guy. You know, they're both weird, but, you know, can you imagine every day of your life, everybody's fawning over you and, you know, telling you how wonderful you are and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, you know, it must have some effect. And, of course... Maybe it was just that. I'm not saying it was arrogant, but it was just forgetful, or it doesn't matter. You know, I just, yeah, a nice bag of grass. That, yeah, I like that. You know, just stick it in the case, you know. But it, it messed the whole thing up, and of course, not long after that, the whole thing disbanded, didn't it?
into the 80s you you still did some session work because you were featured on abc's when smoky sings oh yeah yeah well i did a, an album alphabet spaghetti i think it was called or something like that alphabet city yeah alphabet city. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, i toured with them i went to japan funny enough with them ah. europe and so on you know that was a funny one in japan because we landed in japan of course you know and uh, the promoter came and uh, he took us out to dinner, and uh, it was those uh, the, the Korean-style uh, food. And, you know, you, you squat down, and yeah. uh, you have a low table, and there's a, a, a thing that it's a heater in the middle with a dome shape, and you put food on it, to be, like whether it's uh, meat or vegetables on it, and you dip it and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, we're all having a good old time, drinking beer and doing that. And then somebody mentioned to the promoter, Oh, that's how he, you know, he played with Paul McCartney. And the promoter went, oh, no, because he'd lost face. He was the promoter for Paul. <laughs> and he, he didn't recognize me. But that, they were okay. They were good, good lads, you know. And uh, I, I did a few bits and bobs with them, as you say. And Smokey Sings, I think, was the, the uh, big, after the first album, that was major, wasn't it? That, yeah, that first album, big hit. And, uh, of course, we played a lot of that on, on the show.
know you're right Just to hold your tight Be suited right Makes it out of sight And everything's good in the world Tonight When Smokey sings I hear violins When Smokey sings I forget everything As she's packing the things As she's spreading the wings The front door might slam But the back door it rings And Smokey sings I think is 
phenomenal because they've just reissued it. It's called Steamroller Blues. It's not Tony Ashton singing it, sadly, but it's it's Bernie Marsden, the guitar player, singing it. Yes. And of course, it also features Sheila and her sister Jeanette as the back vocals, you know. Yeah. And the horn section is like hot. You know, it's it's really good, a really good track. Yeah, it's a James Taylor song originally, I That's think. right, originally, yeah. Yeah, but the arrangement we did, you know, yeah. sort of raised the roof on that. And uh, yeah, so as I say, there's many other bands.
close, Howie, um, it'd be good to cover another track that you're playing on one of the forthcoming Beatles with Wings shows. And, yeah, um, okay, Live and Let Die, which um, you also played on uh, Wings Over America, seems quite apt. That's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we do a hell of a lot of that stuff, uh, besides the Wings and the Beatles stuff. But Live and Let Die, that was great. Live on stage, we don't do it now because it's banned with uh, Beatles with Wings, but uh, back in the day... There was explosions that went off. Yeah. We used to, the horn section, because we were at the back and all the explosions went off there, used to get third degree burns every night. But, <laughs> uh, not, 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 not really, but you could feel the heat yeah. coming off, you know. But yeah, it's a great track, absolutely. Basically, with Beatles with Wings, you've got um, a show coming up at Blamford Corn Exchange on the 13th of December, and then some more shows penciled in for next year? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's about roughly about one a month and we've got our right. uh, page there if anyone want, is interested they go on to Beatles with Wings and they can see all the uh, the gigs are sort of lined up you know uh, it's as I say it's a 11 piece band Yeah. as I want to reiterate it's not a lookalike thing it's a sound sound alike I guess you know yeah. we play all the good tunes and it's a, a really hot band real good musicians all throughout well that's except me of course you know. no not at all <laughs> not at all it's very understated it's it's been a pleasure talking to you howie and it's you've got such an enduring link to that music given you know you go way back and even predate paul the beatles time you know going back to liverpool in in the the mid to late 50s and, yeah. and you've you know carried forward that sax sound of yours to this day yeah yeah, yeah well i'm still trying i'm still uh well, I'll be out gigging next weekend, and uh, yeah. I'm 82 now, but I think to myself, well, what else am I going to do? Sit at home, mm. twiddle my thumbs, watch yeah. TV, you know, feed the cat? No, I want to go out and play, you know, oh, yeah. and I do. Fantastic. Well, all the best with that, and uh, hopefully I'll get to go down and, and, and see you guys uh, on tour, so thank you. Smashing. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for calling. You take care, yeah? All right, take care. Brilliant. That's lovely. All right, man. Thank you, you take care of yourself. Just now. Bye-bye. Bye. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say live and let live But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry To live and let die
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast, and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.